So if you uh, have your worship uh, guide in front of you, you'll see that we're looking uh, this morning at Genesis uh, 16, verses 1 through 6, uh, 16. So what we're doing right now, we're in the midst of a uh, summer sermon series that we're calling Visitation and Encounters with God. And our goal over these summer weeks is that we are asking uh, the question, what does it mean to meet God? What does it mean for us to know God. And so what we're doing this summer is that we're looking uh, at many, uh, at several encounters of that God has with his people. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at Genesis 15 where God meets Abraham amid his doubt and his unbelief and his uncertainty. And so we see a picture of faith. We see a picture of assurance. And today we're looking at Genesis 16. And so just notice that these two passages follow right after one another, so they're tightly connected. In fact, next week we'll be looking at Genesis 17. And so these three chapters, these three encounters have a lot of overlap. And so it's, uh, if you were not here with us last week, it would probably be helpful just to get larger context to go back and listen to the sermon audio from last week. But this week we are looking specifically at, uh, at how God meets uh, this woman named Hagar. And so, uh, even though, uh, and, and so let's just uh, dive into this. This is Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. You can follow along uh, on the wall, the words on the wall, or you can follow along in the, your worship guide. So here's Genesis 16, verses 1 uh, through 16. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where, you, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild a donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 
This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> so recently, my uh, son, who's almost 19 months, uh, started to play uh, peekaboo. Uh, just in case you don't know, it's a game where you hide your face with hands or or, or a shirt, and you reveal yourself. You reveal your face by saying peekaboo. And my son, uh, as I go to play this game with him, uh, he actually mimics me. I cover my face, then he covers his face, and then I reveal my hands, and he'll he won't be able to see me. So. Then he'll eventually reveal his hands. And so uh, he's getting into this game, and uh, the truth is I'm rather impatient as we're playing this game. I just cover my face and quickly re- reveal myself, and he, will, he might hey, keep his face covered for like 30 seconds. It feels like a long time. It's probably more like 10. It just feels like a long time. And so I'm getting into this habit of peeking through my fingers to see when my son reveals um, him, himself, and so then I'll, I will also reveal uh, my face. And so, but now I'm also getting to the point where I'm like, hey, I just kind of want to uh, play with him a bit further, so I'm going to keep my face revealed. So he reveals his face, and he, like, my son has this massive cheesy grin. He's really excited. He's like, here I am. And when he doesn't see my face, he, his cheesy face turns into a frown, into a face of sadness. He's like, why aren't you playing with me? Like, where are you? Why aren't you seeing me? And so then I will reveal myself. And like this face of joy returns. He's like, hey, my father is looking at me. My father is seeing me. And that is actually a picture of what every single one of us wants. We want to be seen. We want to be known by our creator. And this text actually speaks uh, to this. So this uh, text actually speaks and, 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 and shows us what the power of being seen and, and heard actually is. And so how I want to think about what it looks like to be seen and heard uh, by God is actually if, um, is by looking at first Sarah and then looking at Hagar. And then we'll, be, we'll think about the, the good news that God has for us. So if you're an outli- if you're not outline sort of person, First, we have Sarah's shame, and we have Hagar's uh, pain. So let's uh, first look at Sarah's uh, shame. And Sarah um, has been walking with God for quite some time. Uh, She's, uh, I believe, in her um, uh, mid-70s at this point, but she's been following God for the majority of her life. And God spoke over Abraham and her back in Genesis 12, uh, promising a child and many descendants. And this would actually be the ultimate honor to to a woman where she would actually mother, be a mother to an entire nation. She is a matriarch, yet despite uh, walking with God for so long, for much of her life, uh, she is actually doubting God's ability to open her womb. She's been uh, infertile for her entire uh, life. And this is actually the greatest shame. Infertility is the greatest shame that an ancient woman uh, could carry. We see this time and time again throughout the scriptures. And what infertility, very specifically, uh, and and we see this in our lives, in, in our world, in our culture, it can be one of the biggest emotional pains a person or a couple can carry. But in this, the ancient world, women were actually only valuable uh, to a society at large when they had uh, children. And Sarah actually, did, uh, she made a sacrifice when she responded to God's call. She left her family and her city. She left everything she knew uh, to 
to follow God's call, by, to, to receive God's promise. And so like this promise was everything to her. To have children was everything to her. She was, but in like her society uh, told her that she would be ever, she would be somebody if she had children. But all these things she internalized, and, and she heard this that she was a nobody if she did not have children. She had nothing. She would be nobody if she could not have a son. And in other words, she was ashamed. Now, shame is, is actually often misunderstood and mis- mistaken with guilt. And the two are very different. Guilt says, hey, I've done something wrong. I have broken uh, the law. That's what guilt says. Shame, on the other hand, says I am wrong. I am bad. So shame is actually uh, th- this voice of self-condemnation. Where, where uh, that you hear that life is not going to get any better, you are nothing and just give up. That's the voice of self-condemnation. That is the voice of shame. And guilt feeds on like what we do wrong when we break the certain things. But shame shouts at us that we are wrong, that we are bad, that we are nothing. It is this deep, powerful feeling of condemnation. And in your worship uh, uh, guides and, and on the inside cover, there's a few quotes for reflection. One is from Brene Brown. She's a researcher, I believe, in uh, Houston. I forget what, at one university, and she's a author. she has several authors. But she studies shame and its impact upon society. And this is uh, what she says about shame, that shame is the most powerful master emotion. It is the fear that we are not good enough. And this is actually something that we are quite familiar with. We see this all throughout our culture. And here's the second quote in your worship guide. This is from Kelly Osborne, And uh, she's, a, she's a, a public personality. And she says once that, I looked in the mirror and hated every single thing that I saw. I thought, why don't I look like this girl or that girl? I took more hell for being fat than I did for being fat. I took more hell for being fat than I did for being an absolute raging drug addict. And so, like, that's Kelly Osborne's experience. And earlier this week, I was with uh, several pastor friends down in Atlanta doing some denominational work. And one pastor friend shared that when he's in this room of about 80-some pastors, he just felt this overwhelming sense of shame because he's like, I feel inadequate and incompetent to even be a pastor. It doesn't matter if we're looking in a, in a mirror. It doesn't matter if we are in a crowd of actual, like, fellow friends who are should be cheerleaders for us what happens is that we just feel this voice we hear this voice of condemnation that's there if it doesn't matter if we don't it doesn't matter if we look at a mirror or are in a, in a crowd we just feel like a failure we feel shame because we are just hearing this voice of condemnation but where is that coming from and if we're honest with ourselves what's going on here is that it's it's, it's, it, this is a consequence of sin. That, and what we would rather do, instead of acknowledging that there's some dynamic of sin in our lives, what we would rather do is that we would rather manage our, our shame, that we would rather manage our pain than actually confront the, the sin and the insecurity uh, that's going on in our lives. 
And what actually happens when we do that, when we are trying just to manage our lives, what ends up happening is that shame makes us do really crazy things. We see this very clearly in our text. Sarah, uh, she has this promise to have a child, to mother a great nation. She doesn't have a child yet, so she takes matters into her, her own hands, and she is actually uh, going about a, what is a legitimate practice in the ancient world of having a, a surrogacy. And so she says to her, her husband, hey, I have this servant. You should take her as a second wife. And uh, whatever child that she has will be my child. And in the ancient world, it's actually very normal for uh, men to take uh, several women to, uh, to either be wives or concubines. And surrogacy and is in that ancient world is a viable solution to Abram and Sarah's predicament. But here's the thing. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the case. Just because that is what is happening here, that's just because that's what's being described for us, that does not mean this is uh, what God has designed, uh, designed us, how God has designed us to live. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see this because um, Abraham, Abraham did, did this. His uh, grandson, Jacob, did this. A, a few others did this, where they had uh, multiple wives. And the consequence of, of that was complete devastation. And we see Sarah doing just this. Sarah's plan actually results in wrecking her home, wrecking her marriage. And it all flowed from uh, being a, a failure. So Sarah's shame that's going on in her life actually causes Hagar's pain as well. And so like, you would think this would be good news, that like Sarah's plan worked, but it caused a great deal of pain. Abraham got his second wife pregnant. He was going to have an heir, but no one actually really considered about the pain that it would bring to this Egyptian woman. No one thought about that. And so Hagar is Abraham's second wife, and we see that in verse 3. And even though she is with child, where there is occasion to celebrate, her child is actually not going to be hers. Her child is going to be Sarah's. And so Hagar is, returns and resents Sarah for her pain, because essentially what Sarah's, what's going to eventually happen is that um, her son is going to be taken away from Hagar to become Sarah's. But all that Sarah sees is that Sarah sees how Hagar resents Sarah. All Sarah sees is how her, this, uh, this the, uh, Hagar is, just looks at Sarah with contempt. And so she goes to Abraham and she blames Abraham and by saying this, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. Now, blaming uh, others is actually one of sin's devastating consequences. In, uh, after the first sin, in, very, in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve, uh, in, in sh like they're guilty, they have done wrong, they feel the shame uh, of their sin, they know that something is awry in their life, and they hide. They hide from God. And when God finds them, uh, Abraham actually blames God, the woman whom you gave me. And so we see that blaming others is actually another consequence of sin, and it causes great pain. 
And here in our text, Abraham does not help them with things whatsoever. He doesn't stand up for Hagar whatsoever. He, instead, he says, do, she's yours. Do whatever you want with her. So Abraham like, actually just enables Sarah to actually cause great pain to Hagar. It was like she, Sarah is emotionally abusive to her. And so it was so awful that Hagar, this pregnant woman, runs away. She's, she's pregnant and she's with child. She, and she runs away into the wilderness. Like she's, she's fleeing. She's, like she's just exhausted and hurting and so much pain that it's better for her to run away. And it's at that moment when God comes to her. When Hagar is in great pain and she runs off into, into the wilderness, like the wilderness in, is, in all of Scripture represents actually greater pain. And God comes to her and, and speaks to her. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? And then he actually goes on to say, as, as Hagar responds, he says, I want you to return uh, to your mistress Sarah. Let me just pause right there because some, actually many, have misinterpreted this passage saying that you should never leave an abusive relationship. And that's a misunderstanding of this text. So let, let me just explain what's going on. We need to, first off, remember that God is actually speaking to a very specific situation. He is speaking to Hagar here. And so, yes, God is actually is sending uh, Hagar back to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah has dealt harshly with her. And, but returning to a situation like this is not a universal command uh, from God. This is a specific command from God to, to Hagar. It's not universal. And so the second thing that we need to remember is, is the bigger picture of what's going on in, in a more general sense. God is is telling Hagar to actually confront her pain. She, he is telling her to confront her, like her, the source of her pain as well. And this is the larger universal application for us. There is something redemptive. There is something redemptive that occurs when we actually face the pain in the sh- that's going on in our lives. Here's an example. So I have a chronic back injury. Uh, a few years ago, I discovered I have a, a bulging a herniated di- uh, bulging disc. But a few weeks ago, I, I had a back spasm. I was just sitting in a chair, and I was holding Liam, and I just decided to get up, and I just felt my back just completely spaz up. The next two days, I could not move. I was just confined to lying on the couch. I was very immobile. And when I was able to walk around, and this was on a Wednesday, uh, I went to the doctor, and he prescribed physical therapy. And so he actually prescribed a lot of it. So I've been going to physical therapy roughly three days a week since I've, I've injured myself. And yet, as I look back and, and think about just uh, the past three weeks uh, since uh, this happened, I actually feel my back getting stronger. I, I'm more mobile. I, I feel like I can actually start bouncing up steps and go for running. And something else is going on. I'm more flexible now than I was before the injury. It's rather crazy to me. But what I'm describing for you is actually something that we've all have experienced, that, that sometimes we have to face pain in order to find healing. Sometimes things will hurt before they get better. Because my physical therapist 
she knows how to make my back really sore and really tender just by making me stretch and do certain exercises. And it's very sore. But I am finding that I am, my body is healing. And when we have life of God, in a, in a, in a similar way, when we have life with God, the, there are almost infinite possibilities for our pain to be redemptive. There is no sorrow that God cannot heal. He often, in fact, heals us by keeping us in difficult situations and pain. Author Chuck DeGroat, uh, he wrote this um, in his book on leaving uh, Egypt, Life with God in the Wilderness. He writes, Though American culture holds out the hope of a quick fix, a microwavable spirituality, God uses the wilderness to deepen us, to mature us, and to draw us into honest, authentic relationship with him as he continues to travel alongside us. See, when things are going really well in our life, what happens to God? He slips into the background. God really uh, becomes like white noise. But when we are in the wilderness, we either recognize that we depend upon God or we'll actually continue journeying in the wilderness until we recognize that. The wilderness is is designed, is meant to show us that we depend upon God. And this is exactly where Hagar is. She is in the wilderness. It opens up the possibility of experiencing God's tender love and care. And that's exactly what happens to Hagar when she meets God. God comes to her in the wilderness. And look at how she responds as she she responds to this. She, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. If you have the, your Bible in front of you, you'll see that, that there's a little like footnote. Or you are the God who sees me. The reality is that as God meets us, he sees us. And so how does this happen to, to us? When we are in the wilderness, how does God meet us? in those difficult moments in our lives. But even to, before we can, we can even think, really answer that, we need to remember that this, that God actually entered the wilderness with us. God entered the wilderness for us. Jesus uh, became man. And, like, I, and I've said this to you before, that Jesus' life is, is known by some theologians as the humiliation of God the Son. See, Jesus is suffered and he endured all the miseries of the world for us. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, uh, we read that, that, just, that Jesus suffered and he was tempted in every way that we are. And because of that, he is able to identify with us. He has solidarity with us and in our struggles, that Jesus struggled so that he would identify with us. That's what we are told in, he, in Hebrews. And so God actually enters the wilderness for us. To, he, he has gone through every single thing that we have. And that every single thing that we have gone through, Jesus has uh, encountered as well. And so it, the reality is, how does God meet us in the wilderness? That's actually what the wilderness is designed for. The wilderness is meant to show us and to help us experience God's tender love and care. Hagar experiences this. She's in the wilderness. And not only is she, not only 
as she hears God's word, she hears the challenging command to go back and to confront her pain, to return to Sarah, but she also receives this wonderful promise from God that her son Ishmael is going to be a mighty, a mighty man, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. She receives this amazing promise from God that her son is actually going to be somebody. And this son is going to be her son. Specifically, the son is not going to be Sarah's son. That This is the promise that uh, God gives her here. And she is, turns and says, hey, you have heard my cry. You have heard my affliction, and you see me. This is a, a picture of God's tender love and care. And so, friends, perhaps you're here this morning, and you're uh, like Sarah, There's a lot of uh, shame in your life, and I actually have good news for you. This this text also has uh, good news for you. Uh, You are loved and valued by God, not because of anything you you have done, but because of who you are and who you are uh, in Jesus. When you place your identity in Jesus, when you uh, look to him in faith, you are so intimately connected to him that you are described as being in Jesus, that Christ is actually in in you, that you are united to him. And as God looks upon his son, uh, he says, we see this in uh, Mark, that the father says over his son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when we look to Jesus in faith, that is the same statement that God says over us, that God, father, sings over us and delights in, over us and says, this is my son, or this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that is because we are are his children. That's the honor that we have. And if you actually want to uh, undo the shame in your life, you have to experience the honor of God. And how we do that is by leaning into knowing God, leaning into knowing him and experiencing his love for you. That's how we undo the shame, the power of shame in our life. And when we do that as a church, as, when we, every single one of us does this individually, that actually changes us as a community where we can look at one another instead of seeing uh, status or, or, any, or defining us by how the culture does, we can actually look at one another and see who we are in Jesus Christ. And that is a powerful, powerful picture. But perhaps some of you are here this morning, you're like Hagar, where you're running um, from your pain, and I have good news for you as well. Uh, the, re- the good news is this, is that Jesus suffered. He entered life and, and experienced pain, he, and he suffered in every single way that you do. And upon the cross, he yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he actually yelled at, at his heavenly father and says, my God, my God, why have you betrayed me? Jesus has actually experienced the full depths of human suffering. He is able to relate to us. He's able to, uh, uh, he's able to stand with us in solidarity. But he actually went a, a step further. He experienced all of, the, uh, all of God's just wrath so that we never would. Like Jesus did this for you. And so he is there with, uh, right alongside you in your suffering. He is there, and, and perhaps that we, we don't, that the challenge is, perhaps uh, you don't see that. Perhaps you're, you're in such a, a moment in life where all hope seems lost, but the reality of my friends is that Jesus is there. Call out to him and ask him, where are you? Reveal yourself to me and show me what you're doing in our life. 
This is the picture of God here. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who values us. We have a God who is with us in everything because he has suffered all of life just as we have. And so we have a God who loves us, who sees us, and hears us. And that is a powerful thing as that completely undoes the shame in our lives. And actually, it doesn't... It doesn't um, eliminate the pain in our life, but it does diminish it and helps us, it puts it in a proper perspective. And it's all because of God's love for you. Let's pray.